The God of Atheists, Chapter 22, by Stefan Molyneux of Free Domain Radio, www.freedomainradio.com. Chapter 22, Pomo in Slow-Mo, The Blank Holes. Rudy held up the placard for his next show, The Blank Holes, a.k.a. a main course of mocking echo, a dessert of condescending smile. The blank holes are relatively recent additions to the night sky of academic thought. Their name comes from their similarities to black holes, which are visible only by their consumption of the energy around them, and because black holes look like holes, but are actually the darkest, densest matter in the universe. Not only are they dark, but also light itself cannot escape their endless hunger. Blank holes are people who have given up on thought completely and thus console themselves with memorizing information and undermining others. In the place of integrating rationality, they have an uncanny ability to absorb and repeat the thoughts of others. They have both the storage capacity and reasoning powers of a computer. They are drawn to passionate thinkers of every hue and love to make the following points. What you think of as a creative idea has been around since Herodotus. Yeah, can't give up on can't give up on that problem, but uh, I'm sure you'll be able to lick it. Heidegger said that metaphysics is not a problem to be solved, but a disease to be cured. Huh. Three thousand years of philosophy, and the basic questions remain unsolved. What does that tell you? Most people are drawn to ideas because they cannot handle people. Ah, you can't take religion away from people because they'd have no idea of how to live. The elimination of belief is the greatest test of the modern thinker. What makes you so sure that you know what you know? Yeah, these discussions are completely pointless, since all the ideas in the world won't move one single stone. I didn't want to get into all this. I just wanted to come out for a beer and have fun. Your addiction to ideas is making other people shy away from you. The root of your discontent may be psychological, not philosophical. <laughs> Freud said that all he could hope for from therapy was to return the neurotic to a state of ordinary unhappiness. You are just obsessed with blank. Insert your intellectual preference here. Human knowledge doubles every 18 months. We have lost our ability to synthesize because the bandwidth is so wide. The idea is well argued, but I just don't buy it. In the long run, all problems end in death. Blank holes are also marked by a number of other characteristics. Ooh, extremely shallow aestheticism. They do not date plain people and are repulsed by warts or descriptions of ailments, particularly of the bowel variety. Often extraordinary bursts of humor great imaginative powers. Extreme career paralysis, they initiate projects in the lower rungs of a discipline, then become enraged when no mentor appears to help them up. Extremely poor parenting, uh, violent outbursts in close relationships, talents in a wide variety of areas, an inability to express vulnerability, passive aggression when they are angry they provoke others, uh, poor financial management, constant overstretching of personal resources. They're always getting involved in non-profitable endeavors, even when broke. 
an inability to decorate their homes except with ironic items like mirrors framed with beer caps, cheesy movie posters, brick-and-board bookshelves. If something in their home breaks, it almost never gets fixed. They rarely read fiction, but prefer the biographies of obscure people. As they age, their irritation becomes almost constant. The few intimates they retain walk on tiptoes. They do not notice their own aging, and often look youthful well into their fifties. They yell at babies, and have odd hygienic fetishes like hating to get dirt under their fingernails, and fight a growing sense of futility with increases of irritation. Now, socially, blank holes are a lot of fun, because, frankly, they're pretty damn funny. Humor is all about making unexpected connections, and because the blank hole's brains are so disorganized, or rather, follow hidden patterns of organization, they can really make people laugh. But it's important to learn early on never to discuss ideas with the blank holes. It's, it's like trying to walk upstream in a suit of armor. The exploration of ideas requires a strongly supportive environment. Skepticism kills it quicker than a bad joke in a job interview. There is another category which I have not mentioned because they are so rare. I call them the small-town Socratics. This is their story. Rudy held up another card. Small-town Socratics, a.k.a. I'm sure a lot of books. Small-town Socratics were perhaps the most noble of the art students, except for those with, quote, great ideas, but they are so rare as to be statistically irrelevant. These people are often from small towns, or grew up in very religious families, or overseas in remote areas, and have very, had very little contact with the media or contemporary thought. They have a fair to good native intelligence, and also possess a certain brand of healthy pragmatism, often acquired from menial labor at an early age. They are grateful to be in university, and very aware of the limitations of their own knowledge, and through their pragmatism are rendered immune to radical skepticism. They also have a brand of skepticism reserved for big city ideas, and are often quite good at puncturing the posturing of the blank holes. The key to their integrity is that their physical labor has inured them to criticism of the senses, which seems endemic to people who have spent most of their childhoods reading. A belief in the validity of the senses is key to developing a rational criteria for truth and falsehood, but it is not in itself enough. When the small-town Socratics meet the blank holes, it is generally a battle to the death. The enthusiasm of the small-town Socratics will always take arms against the nihilism of the blank holes, and in such deadly, inevitable combat, only one can ever survive. Chapter 23 Gordon Gets His Great Idea for many years afterwards, Gordon tried to remember what provoked his great idea. There was no physical event. It could not be traced, like conception. There was no epiphany, no running through the streets wearing a rain-barrel, no fevered writing to hang around his neck for the rest of his life. He was not even writing when it happened. It could not be seen spreading across the page, like Nietzsche unfolding his snares for the careless. He was not reading not thinking, not talking to anyone outside himself. 
The great idea did not arrive in pieces. It was not a jigsaw puzzle, dropping shard by shard down a dumbwaiter. It required no assembly, no planning, no reasoning. It just was what it was, pure and simple. Gordon puzzled over this problem of inspiration for many years afterwards, for he was a rational man, and it seemed to make no sense. How is it possible that an entire idea should come to me, and I would spend the next year finding the reasons behind that idea, and that they should prove true? This was not drawing a conclusion from syllogisms. It was finding the reasoning that led back from a conclusion. He spent a year unearthing chisels strong enough to justify the sculpture that rose whole and complete from his unexpected earth. There were many moments that led up to the great idea. He learned them slowly, painfully, over time. His parents were silent liars. Uh, he had been taught poorly all his life. Except for the babblefish, he was utterly bored with his fellow students. He believed that authority, unfortunately, was about power, not virtue. Ooh, he really, really hated mysticism. He had a very sensual intellect. His intellect had been trained by his ugly solitude, his senses awakened by his great makeover. He had never taken drugs, and he was reading both Plato and Aristotle at the same time. Gordon felt ideas, as some people feel lust, or art, or friendship. Reading Plato gave him a headache. It was like trying to build a castle, brick by brick, using his mind alone. Aristotle was joyous, hard, clear, funny, warm, loving. Oh, and there was the occasional voice. In the few weeks before the idea... He had slept fitfully. His dreams were vivid, electric, and contained characters that climbed out of the cage of dreams slowly, rung by rung. First they returned when he took a rare nap, then when he was daydreaming, then when he was just distracted, and finally they just plain interrupted him no matter what he was doing. They were his inner gestures. They heckled him, mocked his vanity, undermined his assumptions. The morning before the evening of the idea, Gordon was sitting in the overbright cafeteria, arguing with a boy named Gus. Gus was thin, with a thatch of wiry brown hair, a forehead of freckles, and very low ears. The conversation was old, familiar, achy, like a war wound from a distant youth. "'But how can you believe in objective ethics?' asked Gus. "'I believe that man has a nature,' said Gordon, "'and that his nature is absolute and universal.' "'Really? And what is this nature of man?' asked Gus sceptically. "'His need for reason to interact with rational, objective reality in order to survive.' "'But many people are irrational.' "'Yes, but that doesn't mean that they don't need reason. "'In the past many sailors died of scurvy. "'That didn't mean that they don't need oranges.' So you believe that anyone who is irrational is unhappy? Yes. So the Dalai Lama is unhappy. I don't know enough about his philosophy. All right. Every religious person is unhappy. 
Would you say that every racist is unhappy? <laughs> I don't know. I would say that racists are probably not the happiest people in the world, but for some of them at least they're more happy being racist than they would be if racism were taken away from them. So, religious people... Why are you comparing religious people to racists? That seems quite inflammatory. Well, both religious people and racists believe what they believe despite reason and experience. Christians believe God exists without evidence. Racists believe blacks are inferior without evidence. Faith is just another word for prejudice. Gus laughed harshly. <laughs> Even if that is granted, you would have to prove that people would be less unhappy without religion. What amazes me is that you think the truth is so important to everyone. Eh, most people just want to live their lives secure in their beliefs, knowing their place in the world, and the last thing they want is for someone to come along and poke around. I mean, that may be your particular fetish, but I gotta tell you, it smacks of great arrogance to say that what you like to do is what everyone should like to do. I'm a pretty good skier, but I don't think everyone has to ski to be happy. So you're saying that skiing is the same as philosophy? As a personal hobby or preference, yes. Look at it this way. I've known people like this. Gus held up his left hand. On this hand, there's this guy. He's you know, just a guy, a simple guy. He wants a decent job, a nice family life. He loves and lives for his little tribe, his community. He wants his barbecue on Saturday, his grandchildren on his knees, to die at home surrounded by his loved ones. Now, this guy lived in ancient Egypt 5,000 years ago. Next, Gus held up his right hand. Now, on the other hand, we have all our modern Western lives. We are free to self-actualize, to move wherever we want, to become as educated as we can stand, to live by and for ourselves alone. I tell you, given these two options, I would not at all feel comfortable saying that this guy is necessarily happier than that guy. So, you're saying free will has nothing to do with human happiness? No, 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 you're not listening at all. I'm not talking about free will or the individual versus the community or any of that. I'm just talking about ordinary human lives and how everything we take for granted as necessary to happiness might not actually be what happiness requires, but just what we're used to. I tell you, there are times when I'd love to be that Egyptian guy. He knew where he was, who he was, who loved him, exactly what he was supposed to do with his life. Don't you ever envy that or want it just a little bit? No, I, I don't. I don't think that you would be happy being that constricted either. I'm not saying I would, cried Gus, his cheeks flaring white and red. What I'm saying is that I know a lot of people, I've met a lot of people like this, who would love to live that Egyptian guy's life and don't really like all the uncertainty and possibilities of the modern world. It's fine for neurotic urban types like us, but it doesn't work at all, not really for those kinds of guys. But in the modern world, you're free to live just that kind of life if you want, or to live a life of questioning and uncertainty. It sounds as if you want to eliminate the life of questioning even as a possibility. Why? Again, you're going off on a tangent from what the hell I am saying. I don't know, it's like, it's like you're obsessed with individualism. The conversation had grown murky and oddly offensive, and Gordon had begged off and left for his room. He threw himself on his couch, his soul weary to its whitest core, his head pounding, Tears of desperation gathering behind his eyes like sand-clogged desert warriors. His soul, his brain, his entire 
being seemed clogged by the confusion and self-hatred of those around him. He felt lost, terrified, isolated beyond physical measure, enraged, hopeless. Lying there, he could not imagine ever having the strength to rise again of going to his classes and raising his arm. It felt like trying to lift a damp log even as he pictured it, and answering questions and pretending that anyone was ever getting anywhere. What is the point of trying to go through it all? There is no clean air for a thousand miles. Alone on a raft far out at sea, I might draw a deep breath without choking on the fetid waste of others. His unfinished coursework spun through the air like distant planets round a dead sun, essays, exams, readings. How drab and pointless they seemed. Random highlighting, no system of knowledge, no way to organize all that could be pieced together. It's like trying to categorize leopards by memorizing the spots of each one you find. His brain felt bloated to bursting with a gassy vacuum with facts and dates and opinions and this, that, the other, and nothing, nothing at all, really, just whatever had stuck to his flypaper as he had wandered the blown streets of an empty city. Everything, I believe, is nothing but prejudice, habit, emotional predilections, genetic predisposition, and whatever I thought might get me through the day. No. Now, that was too far. It was unfair. He believed in reason. But reason was a foggy club. It passed straight through those who refused to see it. He was arguing for property rights in prison, free will to chained rowers, independence to serfs. Everything I say irritates everyone I say it to. Ah. That last thought had a strange pregnancy to it. How is it possible that everything I say is irritating? This is supposed to be a culture of tolerance. How can I be pissing everyone off? He felt a dark flash of ugly excitement. He had tripped over the trail of a living beast. Socrates had at least some followers. I get nothing but scorn, contempt, condescension, and random marks buoyed up only by my writing ability. Hell, if it weren't for my aesthetic talent, I would have been bounced out of here like a bad check. Gordon could feel the bile coursing around his system like stiff inner gas in a fartless silence. The paranoia and rage of those with the potential to think originally hovered close. I could just hate everyone and save time. Everyone who wants to go beyond appearances to ask essential questions faces the black chasm and corrosive temptation of paranoia. The world is not what it seems to be. Only I can see it as it actually is. This seductive thought with its promise of great glory and endless trumpets, leads one away from the common fold of the human herd to a place where nothing common can be heard. It takes a hardy soul to go into the desert and come back. Just going is not enough, because men die among the dunes, and their truth dries with their bones. No, men must hate society enough to flee its falseness, but love their fellow men enough to return with the truth. They all hate me, 
thought Gordon, and this thought carried a kind of strangling despair. Or I only make them snort and laugh. Even if I wanted to make them love me, I would have no idea how to stop thinking how I think, believing what I believe. I can be hated by them for being myself, or hate myself for trying to be them. Oh, what a heaping lovely mess of choices. How I wish they would all fade and blow away, so I could find others like myself through the smoke and dust of their passing. Now that was a strange thought. It almost seemed to growl in a different timber. Gordon started on the couch, his head whipped around as if some horror rose beside him. What the hell was that? You hate them more than they hate you, came one of his voices. I'm always trying to change them to help them. You hate that they are certain and you are not. I know more than they ever will. You hate them because they do not love you. I don't need their love. You want to destroy them because their certainty drives you mad. They are so blind. You are who you are because you oppose them. What? If they all agreed with you, who would you be? Gordon's body shook. He swung over a precipice, a chasm of falling, where you fell. For so long that you forgot you were falling and smiled happily in the dark, content in a slow spin of invisibility. You are invisible because you defined yourself by the hatred of others. That was bad. Gordon drew a sharp breath, afraid of crying out. But worse was to come. You do not love truth. Not true. Not true. You use truth to hate others. It cannot be. You do not think for yourself. You use the ideas of others to hate people. Whose ideas, Ayn Rand's? It is worse to see and be unoriginal than not to see at all. Ow! Oh, stop! It is time to stop fighting and start learning. What? What is it? What am I to learn? But no answer came. Gordon was used to courting sleep. This sleep fell like a wall and smashed him through the couch into an underworld of unremembering. And when he awoke, he awoke all at once. He stood rapidly, and then the great idea was not his, but him. Chapter 24 Alice and Family at Dinner Alice was at the dinner table with Greta, Al, and Ian. Greta, in her constant crusade to improve the family's eating habits, kept offering more of her Guatemalan stew to everyone. The family did not resist her, but usually wandered into the kitchen after dinner for a snack, which generally consisted of three or four microwaved pizza pops. Another strategy was to get up for more stew and then spoon what was left on their plates into the garbage disposal, it was considered a point of honor to distract Greta during these covert operations. Talk was flying about the boy band. I tell you, Gret, this kid is amazing, said Al, hiding some stew under his potato. It's not just the voice, it's everything. He's like sex on a stick. Sorry, Alice. He's just really, really cute. But so very, very cynical, said Ian. You'll want to talk, darkling, said Greta, picking at her salad. 
The replacement of the phrase darling with darkling was about six months old. Aren't goths unfashionable now? It's not goth, mother. I just look good in black, and I'm not bad enough at sports to be a real goth. Or bisexual. Sorry, Alice, it's a, it's a kind of adult bicycle. Well, as long as you care about something, she turned to her husband and wrinkled her nose. Al always ate as if he were trying to gulp food falling off a rapid conveyor belt. So you think these boys will hit the top? Well, as far as I can see, they'll be a hit if we can find the right song. Mom, said Alice, why do you wear makeup? To look pretty, dear. They're going to need a look, right? I've got one, grinned Ian, waving his fork. Scrubbed dancing apple farmers. Greta pursed her lips. You know, there hasn't been a band with scarves in a long time. Steven Tyler, said Al, his mouth full. Oh, that's just the mic stand, isn't it? And how many of the girls into this band would know him? Armageddon, said Alice instantly. Greta turned, frowning. Where did you see that? Susan's, I swear, those hippie mothers. Her mother explained advertising, said Alice. Mom, would you wear makeup if you were the only one? Or believe in God? asked Ian, his eyes wide. Because, continued Alice, I'd eat food even if I were the only one, or if no one else ever went to the bathroom. I think scarves are a little left of centre, don't you think? asked Al, waving his hand loosely. I was thinking more Byron than Shelley. I have a design that I think would kill. I need a boost, and hey, if it doesn't work, what the hell? I think we just just do covers for our first album, said Ian. Al blinked. What? Ian sighed. Okay, you've got to get the layers of the modern mind, Dad. It's the irony fulcrum. Straight, boring. Pure camp, boring, too easy. But somewhere in between is gold, baby. You see, the most fascinating thing for us, what really tickles our soul patches, is something campy that we're not sure knows it's campy. We should do it straight. Good, solid songs, cheesy videos... But we need to find something that just might give it away. You know, to someone looking closely. Something to start debate. Get us talked about, fought over. Half the class loathe us because we're so commercial. The other half pretend to get it and feel superior. Al stared at him. Yours is a truly strange lot. Sorry, but we never could take Lover Boy too seriously. What about simple pleasures? asked Greta. There's nothing simpler than irony, said Ian. Is that ironic? That's the point. It's about as challenging as being enigmatic. What? asked Alice. That doesn't make any... Ian patted her head absently. Dad, I'm telling you, give us some generic hit if you want to, but what we really need to do is covers like... Sometimes when we touch, cried Al. Ian laughed. No, I remember Downhill saying that he hit rock bottom when he had turned the radio on and heard the San Francisco gay choir doing that song. Pina Colada. Self-parodies can't be parodied. Wasting away in Margaritaville? Possibly, but almost anything Caribbean is too cheesy already. Is that true for anything from the 70s? Probably. Cat Stevens accepted, though I'd rather do a cover of his Muslim call to prayer. Al leaned back in his chair. Well, I'm lost. Yeah, you've been a music archaeologist for, what, about four years? Five, I think. What is a music archaeologist? asked Alice. 
Al smiles. Well, sweetie, after a certain point, your brain sort of fills up with good music. Meaning old music, interjected Ian. Always look for the subtext, sister. What's subtext? Books about U-boats. What's U-boats? Later, said Al. About five years ago, I gave up on trying to like new music and became a music archaeologist. You started looking for Nazi music? No, sweetie, sighed Al. Not like Indiana Jones. He means, said Ian, that he started going to record fairs and used record shops not to find new music, but rather live versions of songs he already knows. Tell me, esteemed pater, how many versions of Somebody to Love do you have now? Counting MP3s? Yes. Probably... twenty. Ian tousled Alice's hair. You can also look for unreleased material, alternate versions, outtakes, making of DVDs, box set for every fetish. No, I won't explain that word. Talk to your mother. Just kidding, Mom. So Ian's point is that you won't be any help finding covers, snapped Greta, but I really want to do the costumes. This isn't going to be a spinal tap moment, is it? asked Ian. No, said Greta. Do I look like an Australian's nightmare? I never understood that joke, frowned Al, and really, Ian, you should get to know jokes your own age. I don't understand any of this, cried Alice, standing up. Shh, sweet dumbs, did you finish eating? I was waiting for you to bring me some food, she shouted, turning and running up the stairs. Oops, said Greta, getting up. Scarves, Al, scarves, she called out before going after her daughter. There was a pause. Al brightened. Bohemian Rhapsody! Dad, we are not doing a queen cover, Ian frowned for a moment. Though that would be a good one. Later that evening, Al called Ian into his study. There was an air of grim foreboding. Yes, Dad, asked Ian, throwing himself into an armchair. Earlier this evening, after dinner, your mother came across this in your room. He threw a CD jewel case onto the lap of his son. "'Lord, on a stick,' groaned Ian, rolling his eyes. "'Not again. "'Do you know that this year, for the first time in history, "'more blank CDs have been sold than recorded ones? "'Do you know what that means?' "'It means that a lot of people are being very responsible "'and making data backups on CD of their important information.' "'This is a CD from Bad Religion,' said Al, "'and I want you to know that you are stealing from these men "'and from your own father.' "'Do you know what that costs in a store?' asked Ian, his eyes flashing. "'It's unimportant what it costs, Ian. That is the price, and you do not have the right to steal, even if you think something is too expensive. This little teenage rebel anarchist pose is wearing pretty goddamn thin.' Ian pursed his lips for a moment. "'Everyone steals. That's no reason for no, Dad.' said Ian slowly, holding up a hand, and managing to stop his father in mid-sentence, which was a first. It doesn't make it okay, but look, have you industry types ever wondered why everyone is stealing? Oh, you think it's our fault, blaming the victim? When LPs were out, they cost, what, seven, eight bucks? Al blinked. Yeah. Then CDs came out, and they were twenty bucks or more. It was a new technology. Sure, but you know as well as I do that CDs cost less to produce than LPs, right? Yes, at a certain level of production, Ian pursed his lips. Let me ask you this. You have a record collection of 700? 
781, said Al proudly, not counting 45s. And how many of those did you rebuy in CD format? Al paused. Most. Most. So record companies introduce a product which costs less, but charge more for it. Not only are they making more money, but also everyone buys most of the same albums all over again, which is pure gold for them. No cost for finding and developing new acts. Tons of money for Mr. Music, right? Mr. Music being the big record companies. Now, why did CDs never come down in price? Cheaper to produce, twice the revenue for the same album. Why? Al scowled, fuck, I'm no economist. Doesn't take an economist. Record companies screwed the consumer. Al took a deep breath. No one forced you to buy CDs. No, of course not, but they had a monopoly on music. Look, I'm not justifying stealing. I'm just trying to get you to understand how my generation feels about the economics of music. We feel that we've been ripped off. One source, outlandish prices, and now a new technology has come along, and the consumer suddenly has the power. Uh, what goes around comes around. The record companies did not cultivate our loyalty. They didn't give cash-poor teenagers a break. They looked out for their own profits and gouged us to the goddamn bone. Now we have a choice. Can you blame us for not having a lot of loyalty to the record companies? There was a pause. Al glanced at the six silver records. He'd never gotten a gold. Hanging on the wall over his little metal desk. All right, you don't have to convince me that record companies are greedy. That's not the point. The point is that the artist is suffering even more than the record companies. Bad religion probably makes about a hundred k a year between four guys. They're eating craft dinner unable to reproduce because you don't want to drop four fins on their album. Is that fair? Okay, so let's look at how the record companies treat their artists. George Michael spends years not making music because Sony has his balls in a sling. Sure, I think that's a humanitarian act, but I bet old Georgie feels differently. Prince thinks of himself as a slave. The artists get money up front and a commitment for like seven albums over seven years, but if an album does well, the record company can hold back new albums and the artist is screwed. If they do badly, the artist has to pay back his advance. Not pretty, but... And look how they're dealing with online music. MP3s, blank CDs. Not with surveying customers, finding out what the problem is, and cutting CD prices. No, they shut down Napster and bully the government for heavy taxes on blank CDs and MP3 players. And they launch their own websites where you can pay per song for a download. But guess what? The artist gets less than a penny per song. Some of the artists are so outraged that they're releasing their own material on the Internet. Or they say to the record companies, hey, give it out for free, because we get so little from this deal that we'd rather the fans have the music for free. And you collect all those damn queen bootlegs. Not legal, right, Dad? Not legal. It's inevitable, Dad. Corruption breeds corruption. There was a pause. Al's eyes were wide. Do you realize, he said slowly, that you've just said more to me in five minutes than all the time combined since you were thirteen? It's beautiful. He sniffed. And you're one smart son of a bitch. That's good. That's okay. I respect that. And, said Ian, leaning forward and passing the CD case back to his father, turn it over. You see that on the back? Signatures. All the bands. They were selling these at their last concert. They get more money. 
I get signatures. Everyone's happy. He leaned back in his armchair. Middlemen have to add more value than just delivering shit. Wave of the future, Dad. Chapter 25 Pomo in slow-mo. Arts, students. Rudy's next segment was about university life and art students in particular. He sat in his little dorm, adjusting the webcam until he was centered on his monitor, and began speaking. Arts, students. I do not know a single man who got a lot of dates in his early to mid-teens who is truly succeeding as an art student. This could mean any of several things. The pursuit of knowledge is second prize to the failed pursuit of girls. Unsuccessful boys feel they need to upgrade to attract women. Intelligent boys cannot attract girls. Romantic abstinence somehow deepens the personality. Boys too lazy or insecure to woo girls are just right for academics where laziness and insecurity are definite assets. Irony, the great enemy of romance, is perfect for academics. Boys used to disappointment in love can survive their inevitable disappointment in higher education. Rudy held up his first placard. Disappointment in higher education. This is natural to anyone with any real brains who goes to university expecting it to be something greater than high school with more professional cliques. For my next few shows, I will be discussing the various types who go to a university. Then we can more easily discern the nature of their disappointments. The next card was the arts student. Resolutely unathletic, the arts student dislikes even the discipline of organizing his opinions. He is obscenely unalarmed by the staggering lack of focus in the arts curriculum. He is an unformed creature, dying to pour his liquid soul into the general puddle of untestable arguments. Naturally hostile to clarity, he champions the cause of alternative viewpoints, not because they are valid additions, but because they muddy any claim that language or truth can be objective. It is this sort of vermin that flock to the linguistic muck of Pomo, where sentences are like a fading dream of weighty objects. They fall hard, but leave undefined impressions. They exhaust clear thinkers, and aggressive monomania always wins the field. Art students do not really exist as individuals, so they seek to spew their polysyllabic acid on all solid forms. They giggle at disagreements as a game of tag joined. They have high indiscriminate sex drives. They are attracted to visible minorities, but always marry their own kind. They are generous and funny in the face of disagreement, but quickly turn when asked to define their terms. They are fascinated by power structures and odd foggy fantasy planets like ethnography they are past masters of compare and contrast essays, and always conclude by counselling balance. Politically, they always, always tend to the left. They have an unthinking hatred of colonialism, but only white colonialism, of course. They are very tribal. They would rather surrender democracy to a domestic dictator than vote in a foreigner. Hollywood is their Gomorrah. If they touch a top 40 CD, they explode.
Art students hate themselves, but cannot accept that, because that would be a value judgment, so instead they displace their hatred onto white males. During apartheid, they hated white South Africans because they oppressed a majority, yet they had no such hatred for the leaders of communist Russia. Being forever and vaguely lefty, they hate Nazism, but not communism, though communism has killed more people. They grow pale at the mention of the Holocaust, with six million dead, but their tribalism causes them to shrug at the mention of Stalin's forced collectivization, ten million dead, or Mao's, also ten million. This is because it is safe to hate Nazism, wrongly considered right-wing, but not communism, rightly considered left. They are very hostile to McCarthyism, or the desire to suppress the writings of the communists, but are very warm to the idea of hate laws, which suppresses the writings of the fascists and Nazis. Being impotent themselves, they are drawn to the left, which posits that helpless members of society must be defended by the sword of the state. Most men in the arts grew up with either distant or absent fathers. Their mothers had generally been critical of the husbands and slavishly devoted to the sons. Art students never consider giving back to society. They are possessed by a strange sort of entitlement, an unthinking belief that society has some obligation to take care of them. They view themselves as rare and fragile plants, which taxpayers must forever water. They hate the business world, because businessmen have to prove value to get money. In the arts, the desire to create is value enough. They drift through their degrees like idle pebbles in an indifferent current. After they have milked school for everything it's worth, they take grants to study Brechtian drama in Germany, or research traditional Asian dance and theatre, or travel far from the pestering of student loans offices, or join collectives or non-profit performance groups, or go one-fifth into buying farms up north. In short, having consumed enormous amounts of society's resources, they live lives that require them to pay nothing back. They hate accountability in any form. Their beliefs range far and wide over the dark desert of determinism. In their view, all behavior is driven by class, race, gender, income, early childhood experiences, physical appearance, accent, and occupation. Naturally enough, they apply determinism to the helpless but not to the powerful. A murderer is excused based on childhood trauma, but the head of a large corporation gains no sympathy for being born into a certain class. It is a classic slave morality. The high are blamed for the existence of the low. The pain caused by being low is alleviated by blaming the high. The result is that the low never change. Now, art students are all for government largesse, but it is more than the pre-tax fantasy of where state money comes from. They have taken the concept of specialness and elevated it to a fabulous form of social parasitism. In this, they are unabashedly undemocratic. Their reasoning follows thus. 1. I want to follow my own dreams. 2. My own dreams cost money. 3. I do not have said money. 4. 
No one will voluntarily pay for my dreams. 5. People should pay for my dreams. 6. Therefore, the taxpayer must pay for my dreams. And this works well for everyone uh, except the taxpayer. The government gets to champion culture, which produces the strangest abomination of the modern world, the bureaucratic champion of the radical arts. The artists get free money, and an entire ecosystem of shit art and warm cash is set up, far from the critical eyes of those who actually pay the bills. And this infection passes far beyond this lost little world. Artists who exist independent of community preferences cast the grim shadow of incomprehensibility over competent artists as well. In popular perception, the art world becomes divided into high art, incomprehensible, offensive at almost a cellular level, and low art, accessible but deadeningly unimaginative. It is absolutely essential that every artist face the test of community desire. The social component of an artist's work is actually a crucial test of its validity. Van Gogh, Van Gogh, the great poster boy of the free art from commerce movement, because his art was not accepted in his own time, always wanted to sell his art to the general public. His failure to do so might have intensified his efforts. The great problem of equality of opportunity in a democratic society is that 99% of everything is, of course, crap. Art, especially art, included. In the world of commerce, most business plans are rejected. Publishers receive tens of thousands of manuscripts every year. L.A. is a forest of dead trees posing as live screenplays, and almost all of it is crap. Vanity, self-indulgence, laziness... The very attractiveness of the artistic life, short hours, residuals, fame, money, a very active social life, should make us suspicious of anyone who tries to become an artist. Also, given the prurience and relativism of the modern age, we often reward those who shock us with poor taste more than those who stimulate us gracefully. Thus, the art students generally fall into the category of state parasite. And like any parasite, they work to shore up the health of their host. The great enemy of the art student is business. And there are many good reasons for this. In general, or in principle, business prospers on voluntary association and requires a strict subjugation to the desires and choices of others. You can make the best packaging, slather it with bikini models, but at some point, someone has to pick up your snack, buy it, and come back for more, and you've no control over that at all. Sometimes you get some residual marketing, like the adoption of your sneakers by street gangs, but even then the consumer voluntarily chooses to buy the cool factor. The difficulty of predicting the free choices of a majority is well known by competent investors. Not only is guessing what people want almost impossible, but you have to woo them away from what they already like. The risks are great, and given the cost of launching a new business or product, very, very tangible. Now, art, which appeals to the mind rather than the body, is even more intangible and unpredictable. The idea, so loved by the art student, that non-artists should be forced to support artists can only fly if the voluntarism of business is devalued. Now, in any open conflict between choice, buy your art, and compulsion, 
state-funded art, compulsion will lose because it is obviously forced and unfair. So the great question for the art student is, how can I advocate compulsion without exposing its violent nature? Aha! Many, many great minds have pondered this question. Since the rise of capitalism, this problem has grown more difficult since there exists a clear and successful model which does not compel consumers. There are a number of solutions. The most common are listed below. Rudy held up his next card. Consumers are not really free. If artists can convince the majority that consumers do not choose what to buy, they have eliminated capitalism as a competitor to their coercive system. Thus, artists are great haters of advertising, marketing, sales, and corporations, and endow them with powers of compulsion and control, granting them the ability to destroy free will, control minds through pretty pictures, and destroy language and culture and all independent thought. Like any group seeking to expand their control of coercion, they have to invent a terrible enemy. Of course, there are several very undemocratic flaws in this argument. First of all, even if people are very affected by advertising, they still have to choose between products, all of which may be advertised. Also, if the average citizen is so susceptible to suggestion and cannot tell that people in the advertisement are actors and will buy bad food because a famous actor smiles at them or believes that the girl comes with the car, if people are that stupid, they should certainly never be allowed to vote. If people cannot choose their cream cheese of their own free will, how could they choose among politicians who advertise themselves? Ah, uh, artists serve a cause which cannot be measured by money. Citizens may reasonably ask the artist, if what you produce is so valuable, why won't people buy it? The art student studies the following answer. My art defines this culture in a way that cannot be measured by money. The old platonic trick of substituting undefinable abstracts for rational arguments is in full swing here. Publicly funded art serves to, quote, unite the culture, and thus, and this is an awful insult to the taxpayer. If culture may be defined as the aggregate aesthetic choices of citizens, saying that art the public would not consume somehow defines their culture is ridiculous. The idea that culture somehow in exists independently of the choices of a country's population is pure platonic nonsense, akin to the idea that somewhere there is a perfect chair which transcends all physical chairs. A culture which has to be enforced at the taxpayer's expense is dead already, but the worst part is not that this system kills culture, but that it prevents a new and vital art from replacing what has ossified Ah, yes. A great enemy threatens to destroy our fragile self-expression. This argument pits the U.S. entertainment behemoths against heroic and struggling local artists. The question to ask, of course, is why do people want to consume American art? The possibility that great art catches the human at its core does not show up strongly here. That humanity may be more important than, say, Canadian... Theatres want to make money. They will show whatever draws people. It's not expense. Some great films have been made really cheaply. It's just that Canadian artists who stay in Canada are art students, and so hate business, populism, comprehensibility, the mainstream in any form, and love to make excruciatingly dull films about people who can neither talk to each other nor use the door. The fact that it is impossible for a film to show in a conflict 
has yet to strike them. Art students love to pretend that they are being wildly creative when instead they're just inverting values. The idea of, wouldn't it be great to have a story with no story, is about as creative as, wouldn't it be great to paint a black picture using nothing but white, or, it would be great to start a business which aimed to lose money. The last is especially accurate, since we all foot the bill for the endless narcissism of the art students. The idea that local arts need funding because they cannot compete against the U.S. behemoth is an obscuring of two more accurate statements. One, you, dear consumer, do not know what you want, so I will force it on you. While doing so, I will complain bitterly about the U.S. doing the same. Number two, all the good directors have gone to the U.S. Give us money because we failed. There's nothing wrong with specialists in a particular field congregating in a specific geographical area, especially in movie-making, which requires such disparate and skilled professionals, that it is in the U.S. is no real problem either. But again, the art students need to pretend that somehow compulsion is involved in the dissemination of American movies so they can blur their own desire for gaining control over state funds. The problem is that giving more money does not make a business plan better, or a movie. So art students in general set themselves against the free will of their societies and content themselves with residing in a sad little back eddy of the cultural mainstream. Like barking dogs in an abandoned factory, they are mad to guard what has no value. But this serves them well, since their purpose is not the production of art, but the coercive consumption of other people's money. Rudy looked up, straight into the camera. And in so doing, to cover their tracks, they have no choice but to corrupt us all.